Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Welcome to Small Business Digest on Blog Talk Radio. Now entering its fifth year, this show is hosted by Don Mazella, Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each week he brings you advice and information from experts and small business leaders like yourself. Each show is designed to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas from authors, experts, and small business leaders, just like most of the individuals who make up our audience. Whenever possible, Small Business Digest tests the products and services featured on the show to ensure they are of a quality to help listeners grow their small business. Guests do not pay to appear, but are chosen for their ability to provide ideas and suggestions to improve operations, expand marketing, reduce cost, enable better personnel management, and add profits. Remember, all of our shows are archived at www.blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. You can hear this show and all others at your leisure. If you like what you hear, tell others about the program. If you have a question or suggestion, email us at editor at is-incorp.com. Should you want to join us on this program during our live hour each Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, dial 646-929-2337. That's editor at is-incorp.com or 646-929-2337. We're only as good as our guest and audience make us. Our next guest I, I'm really looking forward to because uh, he has some information about uh, 
how work is going that I, I personally am really looking forward to hearing about. Kyle Tensing, we welcome you to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, Kyle, as we do with all our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself personally, personally before we go into anything else. Sure. I am the online content editor at CareerCast.com, and uh, just I, I've been with that organization for about four and a half years. And uh, just some background on CareerCast. We are a, a national job news information website as well as uh, a place for job search uh, information. You can find career listings in a variety of fields and a variety of organizations from all over the country on the CareerCast database job search engine. And uh, I'm based in Southern California and uh, graduate of the University of Arizona. Mm. Well, well, we we also know from a very source that you're a very good father as well. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, um, you have a new survey your company does. Um, tell us a little bit about it and what you found. Sure. Well, uh, first to give some background information, uh, at CareerCast.com, we put out a series of reports every year called the Jobs Rated Reports. And we have a big one that comes out, uh, will actually be coming out soon, it comes out in mid-April, that ranks 200 different jobs. And we try to touch on a variety of different industries. So that we're looking at things like healthcare and tech, as well as uh, labor jobs, you know, things in construction and uh, carpentry, things like that. And uh, so we try to look at a very broad spectrum of the job market just to get a sense of how much money careers are making, what's their growth outlook, and what sort of stress levels they face. And that's actually one of the major reports that we put out as part of our Jobs Rated series. Every January is a report on job stress. And that looks at the top 10 most stressful jobs from our Jobs Rated report and the 10 least stressful. Now, we go through a, a series of 11 factors to determine the stress levels. Those range from things like if your own life is at danger or if you're directly responsible for the life of another person, what sort of deadlines you face, how often are you traveling, uh, sort of th those sort of things. And you can go over the entire list of all 11 at uh, CareerCast.com. It's spelled out as part of our uh, uh, stress reports uh, methodology. Well, this report gets quite a bit of feedback every year because people feel like, you know, especially if they make the lowest uh, stress jobs, they usually say, well, hold on a second, my, my job is pretty stressful. And that's the thing, all jobs face some level of stress. So uh, as we started to receive feedback on this report, that was one of the things we, we wanted to do was really kind of reach out and find out what our readers had to say about their own stress levels. So for the last two years now, as part of our jobs rated report on job stress, we've included a reader survey online to determine who's stressed, how stressed they are, things like that. And we've seen a lot of great response on this survey. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the second time that we've done it. Last year, we got about 850 respondents. This year, over 1,000 responded. So uh, quite a bit of interest there. And what we found was that people find themselves to be very stressed on the job. Uh, of our roughly 1,100 respondents, nearly 82% said that they face on a stress level from a 7 to 10 on a 10-point scale. So you're talking about people feeling really, really uh, uh, bogged down at work and for a variety of different reasons. Keep going. You're on a roll. Tell <laughs> us more. Sure. 
Yeah, so uh, as far as that um, 82% uh, of people who, who score themselves as highly stressful, um, nearly a quarter of all respondents scored an 8. So that was the most popular response. Uh, 7 got about 23%. Now, not many people scored themselves a, a 10 out of 10, and that's probably fortunate. I feel like if you're facing 10 out of 10 on the stress scale, you might... Uh, be at risk for some, some health issues. And that's something that's important to keep in mind with job stress is stress does play a part in, in our health. So if you do feel stressed at work, certainly do your best to mitigate that. Um, but as far as, organiz uh, as far as industries that we heard from, uh, we heard quite a bit from people in healthcare. That was, that was our number one um, uh, responding uh, industry. And you can certainly understand why healthcare would uh, would be facing a lot of stress when you're talking about the well-being of other people essentially being in your hands as part of your job. Uh, not only that, but the hours can be very long depending on the, the kind of health care that you work in. Now, something that's sort of ironic on that front is our number one least stressful job in our 2017 job stress jobs rated report was actually tied into the healthcare field, and that was a diagnostic medical sonographer. Now, the reason for that is you're talking about a career that Typically, you work usually like in office hours, kind of, and you're in a setting that's not like the ER, typically. Now, there are some sonographers who, who will work in, in that ER kind of setting, and certainly that does uh, uh, change the variables that would, that would cause a, a job stress, uh, without a doubt. Um, but then as far as some of the other industries that we heard quite a bit from, uh, education was one that uh, we received quite a bit of response from. And that's one that I find... Uh, interesting in terms of stress levels because so much of that is sort of out of the employee's hand, whether you're a professor or an elementary school teacher. Uh, the kind of stress that you're going to face is it can be up to your students, how they're responding. It can be up to, um, you know, if the curriculum changes in your district. Even federal guidelines can contribute to stress there if you're talking about having to meet standards for like, say, for example, um, federal testing, you know, standardized testing. So that, uh, uh, that's one of the most interesting um, from, from this take, uh, takeaways that I have from this survey was, was the level of stress that people in education cite uh, as part of their job. Can I interrupt you and ask, uh, um, uh, in your survey, is it possible that it's, it's a, almost a self-selecting survey that people with high stress would, would answer a question like that rather than people who uh, uh, would have less stress and, and kind of skew the results? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And that's part of the reason that this isn't part of our jobs rated report, which for that we really take a, um, as I mentioned, like the methodology, we take a very scientific, analytic approach with that. This being an online survey, obviously we can't, control some of the variables, like who's responding. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a direct snapshot of the overall workforce based on the percentages of, of people that we're hearing from. You know, for example, if we're not hearing a lot from people in service industries, and that makes up a huge portion of the job market. Uh, so obviously that factors in. And as you mentioned, people are more likely, I feel, to respond to a survey like this when they are feeling stressed than if they aren't. It's sort of like if you think of the comment section on an article, you know, typically the people who are going to be responding are the ones who 
disagree rather than those who agree because, you know, if, if you feel positive about, uh, about the product, most of the times people aren't going to go out of their way to, to say that. And I feel like this is the same for an online survey. You're not necessarily going to see the people who feel like they're not stressed at their jobs responding. And I do feel like that can contribute to the 82% scoring on the high end here. Uh, very, very true. Your website again, where people can um, uh, see this, uh, the survey and other other information. Yeah, that's at careercast.com. Uh, we have new information going up all the time. We usually have about two jobs-related reports coming out per month. As I mentioned in mid-April, our big report for the year comes out, and that's always uh, always gets a lot of discussion going. Very exciting. Uh, so be sure to check that out. As well as our daily information, we have uh, career advice, uh, career news and trends going up uh, on our website all the time. And if you're a job seeker, uh, we have a database full of jobs through a wide variety of industries. And if you're looking for niche jobs like, in, say, information technology, we have specifically tailored sites such as it.careercast.com, and you can reach those portals by going to the main careercast.com homepage. Will you spell out the, the website? We're on radio. Oh, absolutely, yes. My apologies. That's C-A-R-E-E-R-C-A-S-T.com. Well, um, the, the one last question I'd like to ask you is, um, how do you see the future? Do you see some jobs uh, uh, having greater demand than others? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like the trend that we've seen uh, over the last decade or so is certainly an, an information technology-based economy, you know, and that certainly stands to reason when you think of how reliant we are day-to-day -day on tech information. If, if you own, like let's say you own your own local farm, you know, and you sell strawberries to the local grocery stores, you know, it used to be that there was a time where you just drove your truck over to the grocery store and sold your strawberries. But now you can reach an entirely global market, uh, you know, assuming that you have the infrastructure to uh, ship those strawberries. You can reach consumers now uh, online. So even something like a small mom-and-pop farm shop needs, infra, needs IT professionals, whether it's contractors or somebody who works with them full-time. So as we move more and more to that sort of um, uh, landscape. IT is going to obviously continue to be a, a booming sector, and healthcare as well, uh, in part because of the baby boomer generation is getting older and needs more uh, healthcare uh, assistance. And interestingly enough, IT and healthcare were both industries that saw job uh, growth during the Great Recession, and that's only accelerated since we've come out of the recession. So those are really kind of the two backbone industries right now uh, in the economy, and, it, and I believe will be uh, continue to be the direction that we move in for the next 10 years or so. Hmm. Um, what about the, the so-called gig economy? Uh, are you seeing um, inroads into that where people are being hired for projects or specific lengths of time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, as I... Uh, was talking about the jobs radio reports. Our most recent one, actually enough, uh, interestingly enough, was about freelance careers, and that's something that has seen some uh, sub substantial growth uh, from 2004 to 2014. People who identified in their tax returns as independent contractors grew from 12% of the economy to 18%. 
Uh, so you're seeing growth there of about one-third. And uh, obviously with the growth of IT, that's a big contributing factor to the growth of the gig economy. If you're somebody who, uh, you know, using the analogy once again of the, of the small farm, if they need uh, website support, they aren't necessarily going to need a full-time staffer. So you can find work that way uh, if companies just need to contract out for, uh, you know, say one month uh, terms for a particular project. That's a great way to pick up some extra money. Now, it is certainly a risk-reward sort of endeavor because if you work independently, you're not going to have or, uh, uh, excuse me, company-provided health care. So that's one of the challenges there that, that comes up with, uh, with working in a gig economy, as well as knowing if your skill set is going to be in demand enough to get regular work. Because if you have huge gaps, that's obviously going to be uh, very difficult you know, to, to, to bring in income if you're not able to find jobs over you know, weeks and months. Well, uh, have you also noticed, I mean, we're into a new administration. Uh, has the number of jobs, uh, um, openings increased with your company? Uh, are you seeing any trends in that area? It's a little early to tell any sort of specific trends in terms of um, uh, change in presidential administration or federal government uh, practices. Uh, you know, until a budget's passed and that kind of thing. And typically with a presidential administration, you don't really start to see policy impact hiring um, until, you know, at the very earliest, maybe nine months in or so, because you, you do need that time to um, for policy to, to, to begin and take effect. And the most recent Department of Labor numbers uh, for February 2017 in terms of the number of new hires was around 200,000, which is holding pretty steady for the month-to-month -month growth that's been uh, the case since about 2013. So for about the last four years or so, three years or so, I would say uh, closer to that, it's been pretty consistent in, the, in that growth range from about 100,000 to 200,000. So there's been no real change yet. Well, one, one other question. Have you seen any trends in terms of, uh, we hear figures and say that most jobs are, are created by, by small businesses, but, but do you see anything in, in your numbers to back this up or any of uh, data? Unfortunately, that's a, a tad outside of my area of expertise just because that's not something that we focus on um, at CareerCast specifically. Now, that is a, a great idea for a potential future jobs rated report, however. That, that might be one that we uh, have to uh, study a little more closely. If you do that survey, we'd be very interested in it because, uh, because uh, people, you know, say small business are the engine of job growth, but no one's ever, in my view, uh, really done a survey to prove that point. Yeah, I, I feel like that's, uh, you hear that mentioned sort of anecdotally, but yeah, absolutely, being able to uh, to pull up the hard numbers on that, I feel like would be uh, important to back that up. Well, we, we both got our work cut out for us then, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're talking with Kyle Tenzing. He's uh, the editor of Career Jobs. He's uh, been talking about his survey on stress and been giving us some really terrific uh, uh, 
information. And Kyle, um, any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience um, about the, the survey and about things in general that you've run across? Sure, yeah. You know, as far as our survey goes, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, if you feel really stressed at your workplace, interestingly enough, we found in that survey a high correlation in terms of the number of people who say they wish they could leave their job and the number of people who received at least a bachelor's degree to get into their career. So I think what that's saying is that people feel like they're tied into a job where maybe they feel stressed out or unsatisfied because they spent the money to go to college and get a degree and follow a very specific path. And given how much student loan debt there is in our country, I feel like that's a, that's a very justified fear that people might have. You know, if you spend all this time to go to college to get your bachelor's degree and if you go on and get a doctorate or a master's, you know, that's even more money and more time that you've invested, it's not too late to change your career path. And there's alternative methods now of uh, obtaining training for, for certain jobs. Um, you know, whether it is going back to your local community college, you know, on your weekends or that sort of thing, you shouldn't let that be the number one thing that keeps you from switching careers if you feel like you're not in the right job for you. And that's one of the things at CareerCast.com. We have some, some information and uh, advice on making a switch in careers if you are you know, bound to a specific industry because of your degree or if you're looking to get started in something new and aren't really sure you know, what first steps you need to take, I recommend checking out uh, CareerCast.com. We have some advice to that end. And certainly don't let that be the thing that keeps you from making a career switch. You know, that's ironic because um, in the most recent uh, Bones episode of the TV series, one of, one of the main characters is encouraged by, uh, uh, by Bones, uh, the, uh, one of the co-stars, to reconsider his career. And I, I found that a, 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 here was a person that was going for his doctorate, and she was saying to him, uh, you, you don't have the passion for it. Go and do something else. I, uh, it was such a, a, a switch uh, that it kind of stopped the show, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, and you're you're absolutely right. Um, uh, during the uh, uh, sit-in down in uh, Lower Manhattan uh, a couple of years ago, a woman raised a sign and said uh, she had spent $180,000 to learn the women's uh, uh, women's studies and she couldn't find a job and so someone said to her why don't you get another uh, uh, specialty you're so right about this uh, um, uh, it's so unexpected from you Kyle but it's so true you're very accurate well I'd certainly like to think so <laughs> and at least on this front too you know if you don't have a passion for a, a particular career I think it's a if you think of the amount of time that you spend on the job, you know, the average person. If you're working a 40-hour job, chances are you're working more than 40 hours. And then you also add things like travel time to commute to and from. You know, you're, you're talking about a huge portion of your life is spent in a job. If you don't feel passion for it and if you don't feel satisfied by it, there's no reason that you shouldn't try to uh, branch out and try something new. And kind of going back to that gig economy thing, the growth of that I feel like is an interesting avenue for people to kind of test the waters, 
you know, if you use some of your downtime to maybe work in a field that's always fascinated you, find out if it really is the right fit without maybe necessarily jumping full in and finding out that you're not suited for it. You're so so accurate. Kyle, you've got to come back after April and tell us more about your other surveys because you certainly gave us a lot to think about today. That would be my pleasure. Welcome. Well, we've been talking with Kyle Tensing. He's editor of Career Jobs. I'm getting it correct. Career Cast. Am I not, Kyle? It's a Career Cast. Say it. Life. It's made up of the simple day-to-day moments that keep us all running on full, full of joy, passion, and restlessness. It's singing full on to your car radio with the windows wide open. It's a whole bunch of early morning rush hours and a few late-night runs for Rocky Road. It's full of pit stops and drive throughs It's life, and we live it between Phillips at Valero. Valero top-tier certified quality fuel keeps your engine running cleaner, better, and longer. Find a station near you at ValeroCleanGas.com. Our next guest is Rex Connor. Uh, he is a very interesting uh, author, businessman, and uh, the name of his uh, book, What If Common Sense Was Common Practice in Business? God, I would sure hope that would be the case, Rex, but you and I both know that uh, that seldom happens in business. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. We all wish that were the case. <laughs> well, you know, as uh, before we get into anything else, Rex, um, uh, first, first tell us a little bit about your personal background before we get into anything else, because you have a fascinating topic. Well, thank you. I uh, started out um, as an Air Force instructor pilot, and so the training got in my blood there. I, I served in the Air Force for eight years in that role, and then... I went into financial services, but training seemed to follow me, and I ran the training for a, a medium-sized financial services company before leaving that and becoming a consultant. So for the last lots of years, <laughs> I've been a consultant going into businesses all over the country, a few parts of the world, but mostly in the United States. So I've been inside of more than 50 companies making the observations that have led to my book and my passion about retaining people in the workplace. Well, that's very interesting. Again, we're going to talk about millenniums. We're going to talk about they're changing how they're really, I guess, they're changing business. But I'll ask you a general question. If you've been around for a while and Certainly, I have as well. Uh, have you noticed any differences in business, say, over the last 20 years? Well, certainly, and the subject at hand talking about millennials is but one of the big differences. They, um, they're a different force in the workplace than, than the previous generations, and my generation, the baby boomers, boomers certainly. But, you know, some a lot of the factors to retain people in the workplace remain the same regardless of the generation that cycles through the workplace. Okay. Well, let's, well, that's a good place to start. 
what are the before what are the factors to retain people and then we can go into uh, millenniums uh, in general well this is this has been my passion for some time and I always borrow from a, a phrase from the book first break all the rules came out several years ago by Buckingham and Kaufman they did a extensive extensive research but the line I borrow from them is people join companies but then they leave their boss and that's consistent with any generation in my in my experience and research that the biggest retention factor or biggest reason for which companies lose people is the interaction between the boss and the boss would you care to expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you, but I'd, uh, I'd love for our audience to hear a little bit more. Well, we I think we've all had the experience where we've had um, maybe worked for a good company that had good programs, good benefits, but we just um, have interaction with the boss that eventually violates our sense of fairness and, and or our perceived ability to progress in the company and the there is a factor in that interaction that no one is talking about and that's why I wrote the book it's it's what I call the secret sauce it's and it's not it's not complicated there's a reason that causes that conflict and that is the biggest reason for people leaving companies and we talk about Millennials because they leave more readily than people of previous generations their, their tolerance factor is lower. They will leave sooner. That's, that's very true based on my experience. So in effect you're saying if the boss, uh, the manager does not uh, manage the expectations, manage the way things, um, he, he or she is going to lose uh, the quality people. That's true, but let me be careful not to not to be slamming the managers or throwing the managers under the bus. I'm not pointing fingers at them because I believe the real culprit is aren't the people involved, it's the process that's involved. Processes, said um, Edwards Deming, who was the father of the quality movement back in the 80s, a bad system will, will beat good people every time. The reason people are leaving. The reason there's a conflict is because there is subjectivity in the work process. Subjectivity meaning it's open to interpretation. And often the boss and the boss or the employee has have different interpretations about what should be done, how it should be evaluated, how they should be paid, how they should be treated. That's the source of the problem. Well, that's very interesting. So. Uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, you're saying a company may have the best uh, uh, rules, et cetera, in place, but if the manager chooses to interpret them his or her way, uh, it, it can lead to trouble. That's right. And if they're open to interpretation, that's the problem. See, work processes can be completely objective, not open to interpretation, but they often are not. They are often subjective. That subjectivity 
is the enemy. That's the root to all evil in the workplace. Is my is my message. Well, that's very interesting. Having been a rebel within corporations all my life, uh, <laughs> uh, under your, under your system, uh, and and several cases have proved true. Um, I, I would not work well because. Uh, for me, I know I'm only talking about me, uh, rules are almost made to be broken because in many cases they're straitjackets to, to success. But you're th saying that rules, if properly enforced, are, are the, uh, uh, the road to, to success. Yes, and, and rules is one way to describe them. I describe them in terms of the work processes because everything we do in the workplace is a process. It's a sequence of steps that we follow. And the, the rules are the written processes. And often those are vague or open to subjectivity. But there are a lot of processes that aren't even written, that are just the way they've been done for so long. Evaluation processes are one of the main culprits. And so when the evaluation process is, op is open to subjectivity, that's just begging for a conflict between the boss and the person they are bossing. When, when, what do you mean by evaluation process? Well, it could be um, just how someone evaluates a specific task that should be done, and they don't agree on how it should be evaluated. Or it could be the traditional evaluation process. And most companies have an evaluation process where every six months, every year, every quarter, whatever it is, the boss and the and the boss or the employee get together and the boss gives them feedback or an evaluation on their work and their status with their um, status in their job. If that's open to interpretation as it often is, that's trouble. It's very interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. It's at a much higher level. But AIG just let its presidents go because they didn't. Mm -hmm. The board did not like uh, the fact that, the, that his agreed upon plan was not uh, progressing the way they they expected. Yet uh, the plan itself um, was buffeted by factors not under the, the uh, uh, company's control. Um, Yet uh, he took the president took the fall. Uh, oftentimes, I've seen where uh, factors other, not under the control of the employee uh, causes the employee not to meet the goals. Yet the uh, uh, the company says, "Nope, this was the way it was going to be," and hence uh, you're out of a job. Uh, I'm trying to reconcile the two because you, what you're saying is very accurate. And doesn't that scream out of, that's not fair. <laughs> I couldn't control that. I want to be evaluated on actions that are under my control. And so I want my evaluation system to be very objective that I have to meet this requirement, this requirement, and it's, it's spelled out in terms that are not subjective. Because any time we feel that we aren't treated fairly, that's that causes the misery in the workplace. That causes the negative energy that that is experienced in the workplace. 
So your example is a good one. People not be feeling like they are not treated fairly. Very definitely. But in the, uh, in the case of the AIG uh, president, he will uh, walk away with millions of dollars, so he really can't compl complain. But uh, <laughs> the average... Uh, you know, the average Joe Schmo that gets it. Um, I, I just uh, heard over the weekend a um, uh, tale of somebody who uh, took on a risky sales management job and uh, uh, discovered that uh, I, perhaps not even Jesus Christ himself could have succeeded and was given his walking <laughs> papers on uh, Friday. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's very, very interesting. Uh, so having said this and having, um, well, why don't you take center stage and go through you, uh, <clears throat> how you would like to present uh, your ideas to, the, um, to our uh, audience? Well, thank you for that, Don. And I know most of your listeners, like me, are small business owners and it's particularly important for us because when you start a small business or you're you're running a small business or have leadership, uh, any management role in small business, you just are wearing so many hats, it's very difficult to take time to pay attention to processes. And that's what happens. People learn to do things that aren't spelled out because that's how small businesses run. You have people in there with lots of initiative and they will just learn to do it. Well, so they establish a process, not formalized, not written down, not observable, and when that person moves on, leaves the company or moves into a different position, someone else has to come in and reinvent that wheel. I had the good fortune of um, helping a, a lady in St. George, Utah, who was starting a hospice company and she had me come in and help her build the business systems from the ground up. That's a wonderful opportunity. And the first, uh, first thing we did is to determine how we can communicate without subjectivity. The second thing we did is to teach everyone involved how to map out a business process so they could review them every six months, every, every year, and make sure that one, they are capturing the best way to do the tasks that were involved, and two, so you could um, get rid of the subjectivity. You could identify where there are gaps or there are, where there was what I call fuzzy language. Fuzzy language is subjective. It's open to communication. Language like be a team player or we're going to provide world-class customer service. While that's fine in businesses' mission statements, when it comes to individuals performing, that's too vague. I need, I need something more specific. I need my job defined in observable performances. And so the practice in this hospice company would be every employee that came through on their first day of new orientation it would be, welcome, let me describe to you how we keep fuzzy communication out of our conversations, and then let me teach you how to map a work process because every, every six months you're going to be mapping every task that you do so we can make sure it's complete and we can make sure that we capture 
the best way that you find to do it because you're you're going to find better ways to do what we do and we want to capture it. That incidentally leads to a, a point with millennials since we started off saying we'd talk about that. You know, millennials are known for wanting to make a contribution, wanting to produce results. They want to be treated fairly. Now we all do, but millennials are more likely to leave their job a lot earlier when they're not having those needs met. This process I describe in my book helps millennials feel like they're contributing. It actually, not only millennials, but everyone, and it actually captures the best practices so when people leave, the best practices do not leave with them. Okay. You're on a roll, Rex. Just keep going. Okay. I, I can keep going. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I hope you'll interrupt and tell me when to stop. But um, I, I will, I, but you're doing such a nice job. Uh, some people come on this program and don't realize the idea, the less I talk, the better the program. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but I'll go with it. Um, the way to keep keep fuzzy communications out of the workplace is to make it okay to have this conversation. When the boss says to me, gives me some fuzzy communication like, Connor, I want you to be a team player. I have to be able to say, boss, when you observe me being a team player, what are you observing me do? And that's encouraging the boss to give me specific observable performances so I will know what the boss's definition of team player is. I have my own definition, but that's objective. The boss will have a different definition. Biggest fuzzy in the workplace. Connor, I want you to be, to be a better communicator. Well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> does that mean my emails are bad when I'm speaking that's bad? Um, I don't speak loud enough? So I say, boss, when you observe me being a better communicator, what are you observing me do? Well, your emails, I want the, I don't want them written like a text. I want capitals at the beginning of sentences. I want you are spelled out, not the letters you are. And the boss gives me their interpretation of, of what it means to communicate better so we're both on the same proverbial page. That is a, um, an important factor in the workplace, but by far the most important retention factor and human performance factor in the workplace is to make your work processes objective, to take, to search and destroy the subjectivity from work processes. So when I go in, if I were to go into a new job now, I wouldn't make the mistake I've made in the past of just, you know, the boss saying, well, hey, we'll evaluate you and I'll let you know how we're doing. I want to know objectively, how am I being evaluated? What are you going to observe? What production, what metrics, what observable performances do I need to produce for my evaluation? I don't want a surprise every six months or every year in a formal evaluation. I want to know every day my job if I'm giving the contribution I'm supposed to give. 
I don't want that left up to, to get a surprise. I've had that nasty surprise, being forced to have a job I thought I was ideal for. Um, when I was surprised by a subjective evaluation that I, um, factors I didn't even know were going on. And none of us like that. Millennials will not, they'll leave earlier. But, and that's why those of us of older generations scratch our heads that millennials will leave so quickly. We, well, those limps, can't they stick it out? Well, they could, but their, their BS factor, their tolerance <laughs> for uh, the per perceived unfair treatment is a lot lower, and they're more willing to take their talents elsewhere. Well, you know, one of the things that you said is you're asking the manager or the boss to tell them what it is. But sometimes mm -hmm. the, uh, that's a heavy burden on the manager who sometimes shirks it by not really saying these are the reasons A, B, C, when really the, the, the reasons are uh, D, E, F, which they never mm -hmm. um, share w uh, with the employee. I mean, I've seen that happen uh, a number of times. So, All the time. So how do you deal with that, and um, and how do you make it so that it's not unfair? You know, and Don, you're touching on it so well. You really need this to be part of the culture. Now, when I go into a job, I can't control the culture. I can try to influence my relationship with my boss, but if I'm a supervisor or a manager, the higher up I go, the worse this becomes. And so. Yes, we want to get this in a culture. We want the senior leadership to come out and say, hey, we're going to take subjectivity out of, um, out of the workplace, out of work processes. And that's why it was so beneficial for that one example I gave that um, the lady who started the hospice company to start it from the very beginning and make it part of the culture. We need Whoever has a circle of influence, we need them to commit to communicating objectively and establishing objective processes, especially the evaluation processes. And those are the people that should want to because their evaluation, usually when you're a supervisor and above, your evaluation is more subjective than the line worker. <laughs> and that's fine when your boss, quote, likes you and everything's going well, but when it when the tables turn, that boss leaves, new boss comes in, and the rules change with the person that's there, depending on the person that's there, it doesn't work out well for anyone. Uh, you're, you're very accurate on that, but let me ask you, you know, when you go into an organization as a consultant, you know, mm -hmm. the organization looks at you and says, yeah, he's here for six months, and I'll just wait him out and then go back to my <laughs> ways. How, how, how do you permanently um, instill these changes into an organization? And I, I know one of the ways you've got to get senior management behind it. But, you, you know, the, it's very difficult to go from Peoria, where the management is, to uh, Oshkosh, uh, Virginia, where the uh, uh, line is. Um, how do mm -hmm. you do that? That's so insightful. Again, you, you have to not only deal with the people when you go in there, you have to focus on the processes and get the processes 
um, structured and objective so people so it will be established what should be done the objectivity is established and it can become part of the culture but the good uh, factor about that that really makes it that people want to do this this is common sense nothing I'm saying is I like mixed metaphors Don so my favorite mixed metaphor is rocket surgery none of this is rocket <laughs> surgery <laughs> it's not difficult when you say people want to be treated fairly well of course they do and when you can establish a process that is objective instead of subjective everyone recognizes oh that's better that's the way we all want it that's common sense and so my hope is that common sense will carry the day and become common practice in business and that's that's um, I guess a roundabout description to say common sense meaning let's bring in objectivity let's find and destroy subjectivity in the work processes and in our communication make those objective in other words allow common sense to rule in the workplace the name of your book again a perfect segue into the name of your book thank you for that <laughs> it is what if common sense was common practice in business and the subtitle is don't expect fish to climb trees well that's a clever one uh, thank you <laughs> my, my father had a great one um, a fish never got caught until he opened his mouth <laughs> so you're saying I'm talking too much then <laughs> oh absolutely not Rex this is uh, okay. Uh, you're, you're providing um, uh, a great deal of uh, information, which which is important. Um, let's go back. Uh, we're uh, our audience is small business owners. Uh, let's talk mm -hmm. about the owner for a minute. Um, some, you know, a, a small business grows from one to 20, 25 employees, and um, it can. Seemingly, to the the owner seems to think he can he or she can do no wrong because look, it's growing. Uh, when do they rec recognize that they need someone like you? Um, you know, I'm I'm in that position. I I started with one person. I had twenty to twenty five people. So you described my business. Um, I needed me day one and. When I when I say me, that sounds egotistical. So let me let me say it better. I needed this concept day one. And again, since it's not rocket surgery, I could have done this better from day one, as my friend who started the hospice company did. She paid attention from day one to establishing work processes and objective uh, um, objective work processes, objective communication. As soon as you realize that you're losing people that you want to retain right away I hope that's a trigger and you look and say let me look at the root of that was it a conflict because we something was objective we didn't agree on how they should get paid how they should get recognized how they should be evaluated how we should incorporate their contributions so as soon as you recognize that I hope you'll grab the book grab the phone and call me um, but if nothing else, 
look and say, do I have a subjective process? Can I make it objective? And the, the book describes just how to do that. Let me ask you um, a different question. Is there, um, mm -hmm. are, there difference, are there differences between uh, men and women in adopting to this idea? Is it easier for women to adopt to it because women are so process-oriented? Or uh, are there other factors involved? That is an interesting question. I haven't noticed a difference in men and women. We all want to be treated fairly. We all want um, objectivity. We want to know what we need to do to give the contribution expected of us, how we're going to be evaluated on that. I haven't noticed a difference um, between the genders. Um, the difference between age, ages, um, you know, I addressed. It's, we all want that. We all want um, to be in a system that's objective, it's treating us fairly, it's valuing our contribution. Um, again, millennials have a lower tolerance when it's not that way, so they will leave sooner. But we all want we all want to get along with our boss. We don't want negative energy in the workplace. Um, so I'm I'm hoping those factors are universal. Depend they don't depend on the gender or on the um, or your age. We all want common sense in the workplace. I think that's universal, Don. Well, that's very true. As you've been talking, I've been quietly reviewing uh, my own work history and those um, uh, uh, those of my peers, etc. Um, I know with me, it's always been the point. I've never. That's why I have my own small business um, uh, right now. Is because I like being my own boss. It's very, uh, and mm -hmm. I, I chafe at the idea of uh, having someone o over me. Uh, but mm -hmm. the interesting thing I found is that a lot of people want order and they want someone that manages rather than be the manager themselves. But uh, uh, in thinking of what you said, I realized that they do want that fairness uh, uh, doctrine. Uh, they, they want to be able, I guess, to know exactly where they stand. Well, I, I agree with you on that? that. I agree with you on it. I think the day, in the day-to-day -day operations, they want to know just what to do, how they'll be evaluated, um, if there's a process for doing it already, they want to know what the process is and know that it's okay to find a better way to do it. They don't necessarily want the person that has power over them. <laughs> they want uh, they want leadership on the high level. All of us like to be involved in a vision. But other than that, they want a structure that is objective, that is fair, that they know ahead of time no one can control their, no one has the power to control their pace subjectively. I'm not going to give you a raise because I don't like you. None of us like that. None of us want to lose our job from a surprise. You know, I didn't know I was being evaluated on that. Um, so it, it's really not the, the person we want. <laughs> it's the process, it's the fairness, the processes and the structure. Even if we like to self-structure, we still want a structure. 
a structure. Someone's going to evaluate us, our clients, our, <laughs> our um, you know, the owners of the company, investors. We just want to know how we're going to be evaluated so we can do our best to meet that evaluation. Well, um, uh, something came across um, my email as, as we talk, and uh, uh, I'll bring it up to you. Why is it then that uh, some people uh, get into this view of it looks as if the company is trying to fire me? And uh, they're sometimes at a loss to understand why they're being fired. You know, they start to see the signals. They're excluded from meetings. Um, they uh, uh, People stop talking when they enter the room. Well, um, what is different about that than in your process? Um, unfortunately, I've been there too. I think a lot of us have, or we know someone close to us that, that that's been in that situation where a company cries, tries to create an environment in which we'll leave so they don't have to fire us, um, or they're leading up to finding a way to fire us. Again, that's subjectivity. That when it happened to me, the boss, you know, I, I went in for my annual evaluation. I was feeling really good. I was in a corp, corporate job. The team I had developed and that I was leading had made and and saved the company millions of dollars. You know, I thought I was going I was going to walk in there and he was going to try to give me all the money he could. He said, "Hey, we're giving you the minimum raise because of the problem you and I are having." I said, "I didn't know we're having a problem." He said, "Yes, you do. You re you aren't a team player. You resent me trying to rein you in." And honestly, I know I'm a little naive. I said, "I." didn't know you were trying to rein me in, but aren't my results spectacular? And he said, well, your results with my team, of course, he is the boss, he is right, it was his team, it wasn't technically my team, but, you know, my team's producing those results, and you aren't a team player. Again, there's one of those fuzzy terms, a team player, and the conversation, I won't repeat it, just kept going in circles, but it was all subjective. That boss didn't like me for whatever reasons. I won't know, you know, ever. And so I left left a position I thought was ideal for me. But, you know, in my mind, I was forced out. But it was it was all based on the subjectivity. I think a lot of us have had that experience done. So I don't like oh, working for other people. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, I'm listening to you. And uh, I, I'm going to be, uh, in a few weeks, 74 years old. And uh, wow. I, I've had a well, um, and I've, I've had an interesting career. Um, uh, I've, uh, uh, I worked for one miserable year for Bell Labs, which is about as mm -hmm. structured a place as you'll ever find in your life. This is its heyday when it was really something. And I had a boss that um, I guess absolutely came to hate me. And looking at it from the perspective of years, uh, I think he had every right to. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, I'll tell you, uh, uh, when he died many years later, they still uh, the people who were friends were both didn't tell me that he had died. That for fear I would go to the. Um, uh, wake and say something, but uh, uh, 
idea was, uh, and I did some spectacular things um, uh, for, for uh, in that one year, and uh, some of which remained with the company for years afterwards. But uh, it was the way uh, I guess I did things. And his final last words were, "You're not a team player," you know. And and I thought I was a big <laughs> team player, but <laughs> but anyway. Uh, your book is fascinating. Your ideas are fascinating. Um, in your experiences, I usually try to wrap up these interviews by asking, what are the three things you would tell our audience as small business leaders uh, you've learned about uh, being in business, et cetera, that you'd want to impart to the audience? Well, number one would be treat people fairly, but that's subjective. So I'll say number one is to establish objective work processes, all of them, all your work processes. Give that some thought. It's worth the investment of time. I know small business leader, you're just, you have way too much to do than you can possibly do. do. This is worth the investment, is to look at your work processes step by step and take the subjectivity out of them. The second one is to, after treating people fairly in that way, um, is to teach everyone to communicate clearly. Make it okay in your culture, in your organization, for anyone to have the conversation, hey Rex, um, what you're saying to me is a little vague Tell me when you see me when you see me doing what you want, being a team player. Player, what are you observing me do? So, objective work processes, objective communication, and the, the subtitle of the book: Don't expect disappointment. There's a process you can go through to identify the skills someone has to have when they come into the job. Now. If I'm going to train people, I don't need them to have the skills in which I'm going to train them, but there are prerequisite skills. There are things they need to be able to do before they learn the, uh, what I'm going to uh, train them. And so I need a very objective job description that identifies those prerequisite skills, and I need to make sure people have them so I can match the people's skills with the skills required by the job. So those those three factors, all dealing with getting rid of subjectivity, um, get subjectivity out of your processes, subjectivity out of your communication, subjectivity out of your job descriptions and recruiting system. The, the name of your book again, where people can get it and how they can reach you? It's available on Amazon. Um, what is Common Sense? Um, I'm sorry, what if common sense was common practice in business? It's available on my company's website, magerconsortium.com. Mager is M-A-G-E-R, and that's the way they can contact me also through the website. M-A-G-E-R, then consortium, C-O-N-S-O-R-T-I-U-M, magerconsortium.com. It's been fascinating to talk to you, uh, talking with you. You've certainly given me a, um, a lot of food for thought, and I hope you 
uh, our audience uh, did as well. Thank you so much, Rex, for joining us today. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with other guests invited to help you, our audience, improve operations, expand marketing, reduce cost, enable better personnel management, and add profits. Remember, all of our shows are archived at www.blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. You can hear this show and all others at your leisure. If you like the show, tell others about it. Want to make a comment or be a guest? Email us at editor at is-incorp.com. Your host was Don Mazella, Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Until next time, keep faith with the ideals that made America great. And remember, small business is still the backbone of commerce.